Welcome to Overtime with the Sports Docs. On each of these mini episodes, Catherine and I chat about a new topic or surgical technique in the field of sports medicine. We'll give you our quick take on the indications, various surgical approaches, and overview of the outcomes. On today's episode, we're going to chat about a relatively new surgical treatment for cartilage injury of the knee called matrix-induced autologous chondrocyte implantation, or MACI for short. Now, while this episode will focus primarily on the MACI procedure, we'll be releasing a bigger episode in a couple of weeks that goes through all the different surgical treatments for knee cartilage disease. We'll be joined by an awesome guest for that one, so be sure to subscribe to our podcast and keep your eyes peeled for that two-part episode coming soon. For today's discussion, we're going to review a recent paper published in the March 2021 issue of AJSM titled Long-Term Prospective Clinical and Magnetic Resonance Imaging-Based Evaluation of Matrix-Induced Autologous Chondrocyte Implantation. Ebert and colleagues from Perth, Australia authored a case series of 87 patients who underwent the Macy procedure for cartilage defects of the patellofemoral and tibiofemoral joint spaces. They followed these patients for a minimum of 10 years after surgery and evaluated both clinical outcomes as well as graft appearance on post-op MRI. But before we deep dive into the findings of that paper, let's chat about the Macy procedure itself. What is it? Well, Macy is a two-stage surgical procedure that involves an initial arthroscopic cartilage biopsy, followed by a later implantation procedure to deliver these new cartilage cells into the cartilage defect. After the biopsy, the cells are sent to a lab where they are cultured and grown, then seeded onto a synthetic membrane over a six to eight week period. At the second stage procedure, the membrane is sized to match the defect and then secured to the subchondral bone using fibrin glue with or without sutures. Macy is the preferred surgical technique for large cartilage lesions without underlying bone involvement. For smaller lesions and those with bone loss, other techniques are preferable, and we'll discuss those on our next episode. Okay, so now that we've talked about what Macy is, why don't we talk about indications for its use? So in this paper, the authors included patients with symptomatic, full thickness, isolated chondral defects with no underlying inflammatory arthritis, ligamentous instability, varus valgus malalignment, or prior extensive meniscectomy. They did not have a specific defect size for inclusion, but according to Table 2, about a quarter of the patients had a defect size under 2 centimeters squared, which I found interesting. So all of that being said, Catherine, what are your indications, contraindications for the Macy procedure? Are they pretty comparable? Is there anything else to add to this list? So I think that my indications are pretty comparable. Certainly, I'm not you know, indicating anyone for this procedure if they have any sort of malalignment or extensive meniscectomy. Um, I don't think that's the right way to go. Um, for me, this procedure generally falls in more patellofemoral as opposed to tibiofemoral. I don't know. Are you the same? I totally agree. I think the patellofemoral joint is such an oddly shaped articular surface that even with OCA, sometimes it can be hard to match it. Um, An OCA for our listeners being osteochondral allograft transplant using a a piece of cartilage from a cadaver. Um, I just think Macy really allows for those irregular defects to be uh, well addressed. Yeah, agree. And then what about the size? I thought similar to what you said, um, that under that two centimeters squared is 
pretty tiny. <laughs> yes, I completely agree. Um, I have I have used it for smaller ones only when I was surprised by an additional defect at the second stage, and I had obviously that graft, so I didn't yeah. put it into that um, that other defect since they were going to be limited weight bearing and rehabbing anyway. But I agree with you. Under two centimeters, I think there are other procedures which we'll talk about on our next podcast episode that may better address that and avoid a two-stage procedure. So I agree. I think it's interesting. I don't know if I'm just misremembering, but I feel like the cutoff used to be four centimeters yeah. squared, like when it first came out, which is huge, right? Yeah. But I think that two is, is what most people are using. I think you're right. I think I remember that four as well. And I, I feel like maybe I remember that from board studying too. I yes. can't remember that. <laughs> I think it was like the number cut off. It was like less than two. It was this less than four. It was this greater than four. It was that, but obviously as we've gotten into practice, right. And, and progress, we're realizing it's more gray zone than that. But I think for insurance authorization also, um, it has to be greater than 20 millimeters or two centimeters squared. Yeah. Fair point. Um, and then location wise, um, are you doing tibiofemoral at all? Yeah, so definitely. So I'm, I'm primarily doing it for condylar lesions, medial and lateral femoral condyle lesions. Um, aside for those with bone loss, I feel like lateral femoral condyle, I don't know if they're just more like kind of chronic. And so they lack some bone. I'm doing more like OCAs for them. Um, but I do for, for tibiofemoral more femoral, I should say. I haven't done one for a tibial lesion, um, yeah. but I think they're, it's an awesome procedure to be used for patello, patellofemoral, like you said. Yeah, totally agree. And then I know I talked about my like more than one location. Are yeah. you doing this in, in, uh, in multiple lesions or is it primarily for isolated? Yeah, definitely more isolated for mm-hmm. me, but I like you know, I never really thought about that. I haven't had that situation arise where you're like, okay, oh, here's a new defect. Mm -hmm. You know, something else has, um, you know, shown up and you can use the extra for that area. Um, But if it's like um, a larger lesion, multiple locations, it's probably not the answer I'm going for generally. Definitely. And something I think that's important to point out to our listeners too, is we said ferrous valgus malalignment, uh, ligamentous instability, um, things like that you can certainly address those at the time of surgery. I do know some people that do like an offloading high tibial osteotomy at the same time that they're doing the second stage cartilage restoration. Um, I think what we're trying to say is we wouldn't do this procedure in someone that has those underlying issues or else you're just predisposing them to redevelop this cartilage lesion that they had in the first place. Yeah, I agree. I think you're just sort of not actually addressing the problem. Exactly. So then once we decide which patients to take for surgery, there's then the surgical details to decide on. So the first stage is pretty straightforward. We do an arthroscopic biopsy of the cells. Um, and this can be from the intercondylar notch, uh, supratrochlear ridge. Is there a specific area that you prefer to take from? I'm always intercondylar notch. Um, I just feel like, you know, it's super, super easy to access, um, you know, it's always very readily available. You're not going to deal with any, you know, sort of, what do I want to say? Like morbidity. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so that's always sort of go-to for me. Definitely. What about you? Uh, similar. Although sometimes I find it so awkward to like, uh, you know, to 
sometimes you just, you do your curette or whatever you use. And that was going to be my question for you. What instrument do you use? Correct. And it comes off as this like perfect peel of cartilage and subchondral bone. It's a tic-tac shape. You just take it out and you're done. And then sometimes you're doing it, it's just sliding right off of it. What instrument do you use to do the sure. harvest? Same, the little curette, yeah. you know, so um, I've played around with a couple sizes, um, but curette I find is just like the most reliable for sure. Yeah, I do. I have that and I have the ring curette. Sometimes like that ring curette so sharp, it just, you can just oh, yeah. really kind of almost like an ice cream scooper, like scoop yeah. it down. But I saw recently um, when, when we were in residency, you know how we could do that elective. I did an yeah. elective with um, Joe Zarnecki, who's private practice out in like the Winchester area. And he uses, um, he cores out like these punches, almost like you would for oats from yeah. the supratrochlear ridge. And I was like, yeah. that's nifty because you don't have to scrape and risk potentially going one way or the other and fight with it. So I've been thinking about trying that with my next one because it gives you a nice subchondral bone and cartilage. But I, like you, just do the groove. Yeah. Oh, I like that, though. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny that you said ice cream scooper because literally I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> it is. It's yeah. <laughs> It's like a little ice cream scoop. It is a little ice cream scoop. And then you got to chase it around and fish it out. (laughs) Um, Okay. So once the Macy implant is ready, um, we're obviously going to proceed then to the second stage. So the authors of this paper did an open arthrotomy for their approach to making an open incision Mm -hmm. and did the fibrin glue to secure the membrane to the defect. Um, So no mention of suture fixation. Um, What about you? Are you using suture or do you have it readily available? If you're not using it, you know, kind of what's your process? I don't routinely use suture. Now, when I was in fellowship, um, one of my attendings who did a lot of these swore by tacking it down with suture, at least at the four quadrants, like 12, three, six, and nine. Uh, He said that it helped minimize shear stress, but I just feel like from what I've read in the literature and also what I've seen, those sutures are so small. It's like what, like a 6.0 micro or something smaller that you're using. And a lot of times I feel like they're cutting out anyway. I do the fibrin glue, I lay it down, and then I do another layer of fibrin glue around it. And that's worked really well. So I, I do not do suture fixation. Yeah. So same. And I would say like my only real tidbit with any time I'm working with that fibrin glue is like, I just wait a really long time. And I also don't like, I think probably you're probably explaining the same thing where like you put some down, you wait, wait, wait. Um, Because I think the other mistake is sometimes like putting too much on and then it starts to kind of become sloppy or messy. So Mm -hmm. I think that's like, a little layer down and wait a really long time like um because just making sure it's really nicely set because I think that's the other thing if you're not using sutures if like you don't take enough time to sort of wait and be patient for it to set in then like that's where you also get those shear forces totally agree I definitely feel in my first couple of ones I was using too much glue because I really just wanted it to be fixated and I feel like with the yeah. too much glue you get into the same issue that we were getting into years ago with the ACI before we had the matrix to hold it where everything would just settle with gravity into like the bottom of the defect and you don't want that either you want it to be nice and even and and able to grow so I definitely try to use less and your point about taking your time is key uh, especially with the hemostasis. I don't know about you, but I let the uh, tourniquet down to make sure I have good Mm -hmm. kind of punk tape bleeding, but then you have to control that with the epinephrine. So it's definitely 
a bit tedious, but I think what you said is key. Like patience is key and just take it slow so that it gets done well. Yeah. For the um, approach, do you do mostly open? Um, yeah. Are you doing any? Yeah. Are <laughs> you doing any arthroscopic? I, I wish I had the patience for that. <laughs> I'm doing a mini open arthrotomy and just, just yeah. securing it that way. I don't think there's really like any, you know, increased morbidity. Mm-hmm. You're not, it doesn't affect the rehab. You know, it's basically a slightly larger incision, but you're able to see everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure that you've you know, you're really happy with how everything looks and is sitting. And I think sometimes like, especially with the scope and looking at it at a 30 degree, you know, you can be slightly off and that's Mm -hmm. too much off. I totally agree. Absolutely. So then talking about post-op recovery and rehab in the paper we referenced, table one really nicely outlines their rehab guidelines in the paper. And you can find the paper abstract and images of these important tables on our Instagram at the sports docs pod. We'll put it in a post um, with a little caption and some information about this episode. So you can swipe through and see it. Um, But Catherine, let's start Mm -hmm. with post-op weight bearing and range of motion. So immediately post-op, What's your weight bearing protocol look like for patellofemoral versus tibiofemoral and range of motion restrictions for, let's say, maybe the first four to six weeks? I actually, so for my weight bearing, um, I, what I refer to like toe touch or touchdown. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're probably putting down maybe arguably up to like 30% of their body weight. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's a little different. I think toe touch is so, um, vague and that some people like really what they're doing is like non-weight bearing because they're so afraid and then other people are much more aggressive and going towards like so I would say I'm comfortable with them weight bearing with either location anywhere up to like about 30 percent for those first few weeks Mm -hmm. um and then the range of motion I usually just restrict from zero to 90 um for the first two or three weeks as well um and then this is one procedure that I do do CPM Mm-hmm. Um, so all my One cartilage procedure. Are, are you not a fan of CPM otherwise I only use it for cartilage. Oh, That's wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, honestly, I just feel like it's one of those things where I just throw everything at patients just to try to make sure. And so I use CPM for a lot. Like I even use it for meniscus repair sometimes and, um, for ACLs too, but absolutely for cartilage, you're, you're spot on with that. It's like the one that I'm like, you have to like, you know, this is sort of like the expectation. Um, what about you weight bearing? Are you more aggressive, less aggressive, less aggressive? So I, uh, trust no one. So I don't even say toe touch because I feel like if I say toe touch, they're like, I'm full weight bearing with my toe on the ground. (laughs) So, uh, for, for me, I say non weight bearing for four weeks with, for tibiofemoral. Um, I let them start to do partial weight bearing at two weeks for patellofemoral with the brace locked in extension. A range of motion, I'm similar. For tibiofemoral, I do 90, uh, limited it for about until four weeks, and then I advance thereafter. For patellofemoral, I limit to like 60, 70 for the first couple weeks. I don't know if it makes a difference, but I do. And then I advance to 90 and then full thereafter. And I'm usually weaning them out of the brace around like eight weeks once they have good quad control and are ambulating with the brace unlocked. So similar to you, but I I say non-weight bearing with the understanding that they're they're probably resting the foot on the ground when they're not ambulating. But I, I worry if I say toe touch that some people might wait bear a little too soon. I know it is really hard. I think sometimes we give these guidelines and it really just depends on the person on how they're going to interpret that. Even if you go through it all, um, you yeah. know, 
So it's funny, ever since we did our meniscus episode, like over a year ago, where mm-hmm. we talked about weight bearing, I've definitely gotten a little bit more aggressive. Me too, um, actually. Yeah. Unless it's a radial tear or a root tear. I'm still, I'm still, because when I think about it, if they weight bear and it's a radial tear or a root, it, it pushes it out. It pulls apart at the repair, but longitudinal repairs, it, it does the reduction like we talked about in that episode. So I actually do start to have them weight bear earlier. Um, so see, our podcast is <laughs> changing. Changing our practice. Exactly. Changing our practice. <laughs> um, what about impact? When do you start like running, jumping, things like that? let's say for, for ease for like tibiofemoral. So basically for tibia, I'm, this is probably where I'm more conservative mm-hmm. um, and try and really encourage them to not so much. Like, I think a lot of times people just are like, okay, when am I allowed to um, do impact? And that equates to like, when am I allowed to start running? Mm-hmm. So um, one of the therapists that I work with a lot in town, like she started this like kind of return to impact kind of program that like I'll start to implement at that three month mark, but it's much more like quiet kind of impact where it's like, okay, I want you to kind of bounce a little bit forward, like bring, you know, not a real hop, but start to like kind of load a little bit more strongly and with like a little bit more emphasis and velocity mm-hmm. um, and kind of like increase those repetitions over time and then kind of work into like, okay, now we're doing it side to side. Now we're doing it backwards and then we'll start to do hops. And then like, I almost kind of do that kind of stuff first before running. Cause I feel like part of it is like their ability to sort of like accept that load. Mm-hmm. Like I, I guess I used to be more of a fan of like, let's just do a return to run program and it's walk, run, walk, run, walk, run, like building obviously in time and duration or, um, you know, hills, no hills, all that traditional kind of stuff. Whereas like I've gotten much more turned on to like return to impact and like working with these like kind of small step kind of things and then hopping before you even start thinking about running. Exactly. It's almost like weight shifts when you're starting to be weight bearing type of a thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I think that starting that at three months is, is key. I don't clear anyone to do any sort of running, like even a running progression until six months post-op, which I I don't know about you. I'm not clearing them to get back into sports until 12. So I tell them there's no rush, you know, we're not going to let's let this heal in, but I agree with you. I think definitely starting more, uh, aggressive or more increased weight bearing activities around that three month to prepare them for ultimately that impact around six months. And then I don't know, I haven't seen this in any paper, but some of my uh, attendings in my fellowship and now I do it as well too, will get an MRI at six months prior to initiating any sort of running for not only Macy, but also for um, osteochondral autograph and allograph to assess for healing. And so I have started to do that for all of those. It just allows me to confirm. I don't see complete graft infill, but you see that there is a graft in the defect and it is healing in somewhat well, or for like an osteochondral allograph, you see that like migration of the progression into the graft, the creeping substitution. So I do that as well. And I think that makes you feel a little bit better. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And then just like anything, it's always like not just duration or time. It's like, all right, show me you're moving well, show me you're strong, show me you have good endurance in your musculature, you know, while you do these, like, not just one good single leg squat, but like, okay, show me 20. Exactly. Like, are you still like maintaining? Yeah. 
Cause to run you're, you have to have that endurance, you know, it's not just like taking off and, and, and kind of like landing and, and having the hip and the knee strength. You also have to have the balance and the coordination to not twist and, and hurt yourself again. So absolutely. For sure. So then let's finish up with outcomes of the Macy procedure. The authors found that all patient reported outcome measures significantly improved from pre-op to post-op at two years. After two years, there were no significant changes in most of the clinical outcomes. At final follow-up, 75% of patients were satisfied with their ability to participate in sports and 89% were satisfied overall. And with regards to the MRI findings, the authors graded the graphs using the MOCART system which takes into account many variables, including graph fill, signal intensity, order, integration, effusions, etc. We won't go through all those details, but while there are some graph parameters which deteriorated over time, specifically the appearance of the tissue structure and subchondral bone, overall there was no significant decline in their overall MRI score. At final follow-up, 9% of the graphs had failed, defined as graph delamination or absence of graph tissue from the defect. There was no correlation between clinical outcomes and MRI findings. That's always super interesting, right? Like where you're yes. like, okay, all this. And then we check the MRI, like so many things like yep. rotator cuff repair. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess you be surprised by all of that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know. No, I think it is. It's very interesting. The MRI, you know, as I just say, I get an MRI to confirm that, you know, it looks good, but like that doesn't impact anything according to this. And, but however, I mean, they only had 87 patients. So I'd be curious to see if they have larger studies, um, if there may be a difference seen in like the border integration or the signal of the graft or the amount of infill. They said that certain grafts had less infill. So I'd be curious to see with larger numbers, but it is good to know that like some of those nitty gritty details probably don't matter as much in terms of clinical outcomes. Or if you can't get an MRI approved, you know what I mean? Like it's totally fine to like focus on them clinically and to make those decisions because the MRI can't, it's almost like when someone comes in with like bone on bone arthritis, is that like the reason why you indicate a total knee? Like, no, it's like, what's your quality of life? What's your function? What are all these other things? So if anything, it kind of gives you the ability if you don't want to get an MRI, if you don't think that MRI is going to get approved, if the patient for whatever reason has a high out of pocket and doesn't want to do it, you know, you don't have to. I completely agree. And kind of in that, in that light, talking about clinical outcomes being the most important, I found this paper to be really positive. It showed yep. that the clinical outcomes across the board all improved from pre-op to post-op. And I did think it was interesting that the Coos sport and the knee extensor strength kept improving after two years. I think that highlights how long the ultimate recovery may be. You know, it's like when we talk about what we clear people for ACL, it used to be six months. Now it's nine months. Should it be longer? You know, when are people really ready? When do people get back their strength and their function and are truly ready? And I think this paper highlighted that patients continue to progress even years after the surgery in terms of their ability to return to sport and their strength. Yeah. Same, same. Agree. (laughs) Nice. Thank you for listening to our overtime chat. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod. We love your feedback.